Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni who are making a real impact in politics, public policy, government, business, philanthropy, law, and the media. Today, I'm excited to welcome Lindsay Rose King to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Lindsay Rose attended TFAS's Business and Government Relations Program in 2006 and is also a member of our Board of Regents. Lindsay is an accomplished business professional. Not only does she have extensive experience in political fundraising, but she's also started and run her own companies. Today, we'll hear about how TFAS shaped her career, how she deals with obstacles as an entrepreneur, and what courageous leadership looks like to her. Lindsay Rose, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, what I'd love to do is start with uh, when you first got involved with TFAS. You were a student at Texas Christian, as I recall. University of Texas, but I won't oh, I'm hold sorry. that against you. That, you got to hold that against me. <laughs> I had bad information. It is football season, so it was probably the worst time for you to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's either bad memory or bad information for me. You were in, you were in Austin. Huh? I somehow yes. Where where did you grow up? Fort Worth. That's why that's you the, think. That's yes. the uh, connection there, yeah. Well, good. At the great University of Texas. Uh, how do you hear about TFAS and come across our program? So for me, it was just in passing. So um, I was enrolled at UT. Um, one of my sorority sisters had just come back from doing one of the programs and just in passing, she said, Hey, you should do this program this summer. And I had never heard of it before. So it was just, you know, in passing and by chance, um, I think that she was aware that I had, I had just recently changed my major from biology to political science. And so I think she kind of was like, this is something you might find interesting. So that's how I heard of it. Yeah, well, as I recall, hopefully correctly, uh, you were thinking of pre-med, you mentioned yes. biology, becoming a veterinarian. Absolutely. What led you to change your major to political science? It was the required Texas government class that the University of Texas at the time made me take in order to be in the College of Natural Sciences. Um, and so I had been dreading that class. Um, I had spent the first almost three years of my time at UT, like chemistry, biology, all of that. I was in a lab with a pipette. I had like, you know, glasses on and I had been dreading this class. So when I finally took that class, uh, the professor, you know, just spoke. It was one of the first times where I was introduced to a learning environment where it wasn't memorize this formula, apply this to that. It was how do you feel about this? Raise your hand. What do you think of this? And so I remember sitting in that classroom thinking, ooh, you know, I promised my parents I was going to be an equine veterinarian, but this sounds way more interesting. And so then you, your, your sorority sister told you about TFAS and you applied and yes, uh, you ended up in Washington for a summer in our business and government affairs program. Correct. Tell me a little bit about that experience. We were at Georgetown at the time, right? We were at Georgetown, um, which is now dating me significantly. Uh, if there's anyone 
<laughs> yeah, yeah that was, listening. You know, that was at least nine years ago when we left yeah, for George nine. Mason. It was only nine years ago. That's when we went to George Mason University. Yeah. Well, I mean, my experience was pretty much defined by the live, learn, intern motto that I believe we still right. frequently use. Um, for me, that was the classroom that was living in the DC area and going to an internship with real world experience, and then also the mentor that I had. So I had a wonderful experience, but going into it, I had no idea what was ahead of me. Um, when you're in a university setting prior to going to TFAS, you're in this bubble. You tend to not interact that much with the real world and like real adults, so to speak. And to be thrown into an environment where learning, interning, and all of that is colliding together, uh, it was a pretty awesome experience, but definitely a lot going on um, and invaluable. I have a seem to recall at some point you told me you came from somewhat of a mixed marriage. Parents <laughs> yes. with different political affiliations. And religious, too. And religious. And yeah. you must, must have made for interesting conversations around the dinner table. That is correct. And is this leading into the time when I lied to TFAS on my application? Sure. Oh, okay. well, I, <laughs> if you're willing to tell that story, go right ahead. <laughs> so, and this is after I had heard when you had asked, you know, when I first learned of TFAS, um, I was looking online at the application process. And as history... Prior to this, I had a Catholic mom who was a Democrat, and my father was Methodist and extremely conservative. So growing up, it was constant conversations and arguments uh, back and forth at the dinner table. I mean, it just was the way we were, confrontational and, you know, back up your claim. Um, so I was surrounded by different sides all the time. And when I showed my mom the online application for TFAS, she leans in and, she, and at the time I was extremely liberal. I was interning and campaigning in Austin for the Democratic Party and candidates that they had. And my mom leaned in and she goes, because I think one of the questions at the time was how conservative you are. It was something along. I mean, Someone could pull up something from that many years ago, but it was how conservative are you, you know, ABCD. And my mom goes, Lindsay, you have to pick the most conservative option because this is a very conservative organization. And I was like, sure, I'll let them think I'm conservative because I want to get picked because my, you know, friend had spoken about this program. Plus, I was like, going to Washington, D.C. would be awesome. Uh, and so I lied on my application. Um, I don't know if that says anything. My mom, the Democrat at the time, told me to lie. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I have to interject that you didn't need to lie because, uh, you know, we we our admissions is kind of blind in terms of your political outlook and continues to be. It was actually a decision we made in about 1974, I think, not too many years after we were founded, that we wanted to accept the best and brightest young leaders from across the country without regard to their perspective on any particular policy or issues or party affiliation. But you're right. When we accept students in terms of purposes of internship placements, we need to usually ask them their political affiliation, get a sense of that because you wouldn't want to place someone who's like a college Republican 
in a Democratic office or someone who's a college exactly. Democrat in a Republican office. So that's when we kind of make that ask the student. And that's when you probably had to, you've yes, fudged it, your answer. I think I could actually clarify. It wasn't a lie. I naively answered the question. How about that? I hadn't done or enough a, research before answering. It was a prediction of the future, maybe. <laughs> it was. And I, I actually was placed at a fairly uh, conservative um, internship and I worked for them for five years after that. So yeah, and you had a good experience in your internship, I take it. Because yes, went, I had a they, great hired, they hired you when you graduated. They did. And that's something I can talk about later too. And and you had uh, a couple of courses on uh, in the business government affairs program, and I think one on ethics and values. Did you find the courses interesting? Do you, I don't know if you remember them very well at this point. Not that it was yeah. that long ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think the the biggest takeaway from transitioning from being, you know, the prior semester I had been at the University of Texas as a political science major. And then I transitioned into TFAS and you go straight into these classes. And the biggest difference is that or the people teaching the class had uh, real life jobs or had had a real life job or they consulted or interacted with people outside of an academic setting. And I had never experienced that before. So the type of conversations and the interaction that the professors had with me and the other students in the class was different. It was a completely new experience because they brought in this outside world um, skill set and thought and problem solving type of skill set, so to speak. And uh, you mentioned the, the, the live aspect of live, learn, intern. You probably developed some friendships that stayed with you for some time afterwards and found a group. Yes. And um, I believe our theme in our apartment was make it work because all there were four of us in the apartment and um, all of us were from, I'll, I'll say, not an urban environment. And the Georgetown campus was extremely urban. And what we dealt with that summer was like horrifying for us, but we learned real quick how to make it work. And we got real tough real quick and learned how to be city girls. <laughs> you know, the biggest uh, complaint in those years about our program from students was the dormitories at Georgetown and the wildlife that seemed to inhabit yes, them. Yes, we had <laughs> mice. Uh, we named them. Uh, we also flooded our uh dorm or apartment. It was an apartment style dorm flooded multiple times that summer. So we learned a lot about interacting with a management company and all of that and advocating. <laughs> so, Well, now, now uh, we use our, uh, the students are housed at George Washington university, which has much better accommodation. Yeah, they've got it good now. They've got it good. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's closer to the Metro as well. And then oh, they go, go to the George Mason university campus in Arlington for classes, which is a relatively new building, state of the art. And so it's working out much better in terms of that kind of the lifestyle of the students. <laughs> Tell me about your, you, you got hired by your intern sponsor after the summer, after you graduated, I take it. And I did. And it had to do with politics. It did. So um, it was an organization that worked with corporations and trade associations on how to engage their employees politically. So we would come in and help them build that relationship with Congress. 
and find out which representatives were, you know, advancing things for their employees or advancing things for their customer base. And then also the second arm of that is we would consult them on how to then fundraise money legally and ethically in order to back certain candidates that that business or trade association wanted to back financially. So yeah. it, was, it was a pretty cool job and I learned a lot. Well, I, I love hearing from alumni who got their first job as a result of their internship. Uh, that's not that uncommon uh, in our program. And it was true for me too. I did our program in much before you did and interned for a congressman who hired me when I graduated from college. And I worked for him for a little, almost three years. So, uh, and in many of the uh, podcast conversations so far, that has been the case where students graduate and then came back to work for their intern sponsor, which is, which is wonderful. We love that. Uh, we love to provide ideas and thoughtful conversations at our program. And I should get back to what you said about the fact that we do recruit students from across the spectrum, you know, and work very hard to make sure that it's a civil environment for them to engage in discussions about e ideas, either in the classroom with professors who have real life experience or in the dormitory at night. I would assume your roommates weren't all of the same political persuasion. No. And same with the program I did. I mean, it's not called, it has a different name now, the business and government one. But even my, you know, the other students, we even clashed at times. And it was great, though, because we all were there for the same purpose. We were there to get this experience outside of the university that we were coming from. None of us had any ties to each other prior to coming to TFAS. And so it was just a, a very unique environment to discuss ideas. It was discussing ideas free of any previous bubble or, you know, family environment or friendships that you had prior to that. Um, it was all new. Well, I, I had uh, breakfast with some students toward the end of this summer's program. And I remember asking them whether they've had really heated arguments in the dorm at night over controversial issues like, say, Supreme Court decisions that have been issued yeah. this summer. And the response I got was, oh, no, they haven't been that heated we just really appreciate the opportunity to hear different perspectives from each other. And I thought that's great. I, I loved hearing that because that's really what we try to set up at orientation now is have friends who have different perspectives than you be willing to listen and engage in civil conversations. And, you know, it's unlikely any of you will persuade anyone of a different viewpoint in an argument at night in your dorm. Yeah. That person you're arguing with isn't going to suddenly see the light and change their view on the issue. So, you know, be willing to have a civil discussion and listen. And hopefully that's what took place that summer when you were at TFAS. Absolutely. And it's good to hear that it's still happening and TFAS is providing that environment for it to happen. That's the most important thing. And do, do, looking back, do you think that your background where you grew up, those kind of conversations at the dinner table where you said you had to come with good arguments, that was probably a valuable experience for you to have parents who, you know, had that kind of dinner table discussions underway. I, I'm thinking of it because in the podcast we just released today, in a conversation I had with Elliot Kaufman, who is at the Wall Street Journal now, he, he came from exactly an environment like that, not necessarily differing viewpoints, but enough of a, I'll put it this way, he said at almost every dinner conversation, there was an argument and they had to 
back it up with evidence. And that turned Elliot into a champion debater in high school. And wow. And now he carries on in the role of a letters editor at the Wall Street Journal, where the debate is pretty intense too, and the letters he publishes. So I think that I think it's important for those conversations to take place around the dinner table. Absolutely. And to then have an opportunity to learn how to use those conversation skills my first summer in DC with TFAS, it was, you know, you then continue to learn after you get out of your home environment, how um, to speak with one another, how to state your case, how to, because in a lot of situations, at least um, once you go into the professional working world, a lot of decisions are compromises. A lot of decisions are um, not ideal. And so when you can learn to hear the opposing side's case and understand what you know top priorities are for them and what the top priorities for your side that you're representing are especially in the business community you can tend to negotiate and come to a really good decision that benefits both sides so professionally being able to debate that way and speak that way at TFAS with the other students that summer really set the stage for the rest of my professional career, which rest, I guess, you know, professional career really started with TFAS. So. Well, that, that is an outstanding piece of wisdom you just shared. Uh, and I think not enough young people and college students understand that in, in terms of what it's like in a career and not just in the business world, but particularly in the business world where you have to make compromises. You have to be willing to hear viewpoints that you don't always agree with. Yeah. And reach a decision on something. If you're not going to be that type of person, you're not willing to learn how to develop that skill set, then you really should not pick a career where those skills are needed. You should work or champion for a cause that you can blindly do. But for most of Americans and most people that I know that have gone through the Fund for American Studies, like you're in these normal professional settings and you have to work with other people in a team for a better answer and a better solution for everyone than sticking to an ideal. Well, let's, let's fast forward a little because I do want to get to your the entrepreneurial endeavors, particularly your, your, your most recent, but so you went from five years working for the company that sponsored you as an intern. And then you, at some point you broke it on your own, right? With your own company. I did. And in the interim, I then worked for a national trade association doing fundraising, political fundraising. And then I worked for um, a defense company doing political fundraising. And I was asked while I was employed with the defense company to jump on a campaign and fundraise. So jumping on that campaign um, was kind of the first step into my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial career. My yeah, <laughs> It's been a long day if I missed out <laughs> that. Um, and so that really is what kicked off what I'm calling my second career because I did political consulting for companies and trade associations for almost 10 years prior to starting my own company. Uh, and, and so tell us about that decision to start your own company. I basically was like a hired gun for this campaign. They're like, we need you to come in for the primaries and do X, Y, and Z. So I thought it was just going to be, a, you know, three to six months max, and then I'll go back to DC and work for a business or hopefully get the job that I had previously. Um, but I realized after the campaign that I really liked 
making my own decisions. <laughs> I, I really liked knowing that everything that happened, I was responsible for it. I wasn't answering, like I was answering to the candidate and to the campaign as a whole, but I came in as a consultant, like, Hey, like I said before, I was a hired gun. And I really liked doing that. And I knew I couldn't do that if I worked for a company or a trade association. So I started my own business and it was pretty scary. I bet. Yeah. Cause you know, you're not really taught how to be an entrepreneur. Um, maybe now there's more, you know, curriculum and stuff in our schools for that, but I'm not aware of it. And it was pretty scary. And a lot of people, uh, my professional peers and things of that nature kind of looked down on it. Like, why, why would you do that? We've all worked our tails off to become seasoned political professionals in our fields. Like, why would you leave that and start over. So it was, it was pretty scary, but the milestone moment for me when I knew it was all worth it was when, and it's not a a big number, but for me at the time, it was important is when I made my first $10,000 completely on my own. That was, I sought out the client. I worked for that client. I filed, I did the invoicing. I opened the bank account. I put the checks in there. So that first 10K was a huge accomplishment for me. And how how long did you have this company? It was probably cyclical through campaigns. and I did it. um, It was the whole year. So you you ran your own company. Did you have any employees at that time or was it just you? It was just me. It was just a, you know, solo operation. And now did you, you, you move to Texas? Yes. And you saw another entrepreneurial opportunity. Yes. I launched a venture that was in no way related to political consulting. <laughs> so um, you can do something that's not related to your current career. Uh, so I actually came up with the idea for this business when I was living in Arlington, Virginia, Washington, D.C. area. I had the idea, but I didn't press go on it until probably three months after I thought of it. And then during that time, my husband actually um, had a job opportunity in Houston, Texas. So we were busy moving to another state. So I said, this is a great time to start a new company when you're moving across the country. Uh, Don't recommend it, but it can be done. So my idea was in the box subscription space. So if anyone's familiar with that, it's a lot of shipping logistics. It's a direct to consumer business model. So the idea I had was to create hosting boxes that helped uh, busy individuals entertain and enjoy their friends and family in their home. And it was subscription based, which I really liked that business model because you get recurring revenue. Mine was quarterly. So quarterly, I knew that I had this revenue coming in. It was a lot of work, but I loved it. And I want to say before I forget, the whole reason that I pressed go on this idea was because I wasn't afraid to let go of my current career. And I wasn't afraid to let go of my current career because I'd taken that chance and taken the job at that campaign. And that got me thinking like, oh, I can work on my own. I have a skill set where I can find clients and do business deals on my own. So even if you aren't 
in that mindset, you can very quickly get into the mindset of starting a business as long as you aren't afraid to give up what you currently have. Yeah. And uh, now this company, you, you named it Mostus, right? Yes. Hostess Mostus Mostus. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a story uh, about getting a write-up in the Houston Chronicle. Yeah, that was a defining moment. Well, and, and, and I think you tapped the alumni network to help get that. I think it tapped itself. Um, okay. And that's how strong the alumni network is. Um, so I think I had the word had gotten out that I had started this business. And I got a call from the Houston Chronicle a reporter. And she said, hey, we're doing the story and had mentioned, you know, the connection with TFAS and you know, that really, I hit the ground running. And that was before I had officially launched the business. I had done a soft launch, which also might be called a friends and family launch for anyone that's interested in um, starting like a direct to consumer business. Um, sometimes there's a soft launch before it really goes live. And so I was in that phase. This is, I recall, was this 2016 you launched Mostus? Yes, I did the soft launch in 2016 and I was still running my political fundraising firm during the day. So I was during doing that from nine to five and then starting this company from like five o'clock until whenever my husband was like, you have to close your laptop. So I was working two jobs in 2016. That's the life of an entrepreneur. And then, it is. and then it took off and, uh, you were, you know, growing and, uh, probably, probably had to carry a lot of inventory Suddenly we hit a pandemic and that meant not many people were having parties. Is that right? Yes. Well, what's interesting with, with my business was that I didn't lose my customer base. I had actually, well, for the most part, um, since it was subscription-based, which is a huge, I would I totally advocate for businesses that are subscription-based because of the recurring, recurring revenue. But I had a great base of customers that loved the product and could financially, because we were a luxury product. Um, so they could financially handle it. But the biggest issue that I faced was in the shipping and logistics portion of my business. And I'll kind of very put things in simple terms, but I had to rely on my wholesalers who were getting products overseas. A lot of things were held up on shipping containers for long periods of time, or they weren't getting anything because factories shut down. I also had wholesalers that were based in the United States who you know, for weeks on end would have no employees that could work for them because of the pandemic. And so that completely turned my business upside down. And we just were, I mean, we could not get products to then create our subscription boxes with and then ship them out to our customers. So we, I had to get very creative on how we source products. It was extremely stressful. We had to make a lot of cuts and that the shipping and logistics and wholesale side of it is really what um, hurt us the most. Oh, I can't imagine that, that. That must have been so very stressful. You're building this dream into reality and then suddenly the world changes and you've got to try to figure it out and maybe pivot. And so how, what did you do? Well, we made a lot of cuts. I don't, I mean, if you want me to go into the details on that, I well, can, but it was basic cuts across the board and um, well, I, I mean, can talk is the business still going now? The company Mostus LLC is, but the direct-to-consumer subscription portion is not. And I'm happy to jump into that because that was our pivot. Yeah, please do. So we 
so we kept the doors open and the lights on, so to speak, for our subscription business for probably nine months longer than we should have. Um, I was going in the hole, but trying to explain that to customers is, you know, how do you explain to a customer, hey, the invoice that we got for the wholesaler, they just called and upped it by 25% just because, right? Like I can't then go to the customer and say, so, hey, by the way, this product you just bought for me, I need you to give me you know, 25% more of the value, you know, it was crazy. Um, so during this time, um, someone on my team, who's actually our photographer that helped to do the marketing and would create videos and beautiful photos for us to market our product said, Hey, I have some businesses that I work with that want their products to look the way you style your products. And it was something I never really like I thought it would be someone like, hey, I want to merge our businesses or I want to buy your business. That would have been awesome if someone was like, hey, <laughs> someone, a big, huge retailer wants to buy your business. Fantastic. So it kind of was not something I was seeking out or thinking would happen. And I did um, work, just did a couple of client type jobs for these small businesses. And I realized I really liked it. I also realized that there was hardly any overhead. So you had mentioned inventory before. So the business model I had was inventory heavy. I had to have a warehouse. I had to pay for shipping. I had to, all of this money is tied up in that portion of the business. And when you're going in as a marketing consultant or styling consultant for a business, I mean, you call the shots. It's okay. This is my hourly rate. Do you want, you know, how big of a team do you want for this marketing photo shoot? Here's everything. And so it's up front. the uh, other businesses paying for that. And so I saw this opportunity where I could get rid of the burden of inventory management and logistics and shipping, which was a nightmare. Any small business out there will tell you that was the worst part of the pandemic. And I could literally financially go in a direction where there's no overhead. And it was a pretty amazing um, concept. So about halfway through 2021, we refunded all of our subscriptions. Uh, that's the one downfall of a subscription-based business is that if you do close down the business, you have to refund everyone that had prepaid. Yeah. So once we did that, um, I pivoted the business model to be marketing and styling based for other small businesses. Yeah. And, and that's going well, I take it you're growing. Yes. Um, I have a monthly, um, actually a well-known magazine that every month we work on their products and we curate how we're going to style it. Um, so it's, it's pretty awesome that I've been able to pivot that way. Well, that's outstanding. The, you know, I, I truly believe entrepreneurship is kind of at the heart of our the American economy. It's small business. And even through the pandemic, I was amazed at the numbers of small businesses that were being started. You know, many more fail than succeed, but you've really had a couple of successes. And, uh, you know, that's a credit to you and your hard work and your long hours and your intelligence as you built these companies uh, without, as you said, you weren't taught how to be an entrepreneur. No. Uh, you learned through experience and, uh, that's just outstanding. What kind of advice, if any, could you offer to a young person who says, you know, I, I really want to be an entrepreneur and start a business, 
they may have an idea, they may not, but how do, how do you go about saying, you know, accomplishing that dream of wanting to be an entrepreneur? So my first piece of advice is real simple. Just don't be afraid. Just do it because what you think is the hardest thing, which is making the decision to do it while it's very, very hard, the real work comes when you build the business. So rip the bandaid off, just do it. Um, Be brave. Don't be afraid of it. My second piece of advice is depending on what state you live in, you need to look at um, trademarking the name and, you know, working with a third party to get a website reserved, a website domain name, um, and then making sure that you file the necessary paperwork to either be a sole proprietorship or an LLC. Um, In Texas, it's very easy. Texas is extremely open for business for um, entrepreneurs, Uh, but it does vary by state. So make sure you look up the proper channels on that and just do it. So one is the inspirational side, like just be brave, go do it. And then the second is the the paperwork side of it, like administratively, make sure you've got, do you need to trademark the name? Do you have the website? And have you done the paperwork with the state that you live in to do business properly? And then you're off to the races. And three would be, be prepared to work hard. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, it's yes. And you might be working two jobs. You might need to keep your day job and do this after you get home or after you clock out. Um, And that is something you have to be prepared for. Or you might be making decisions that you've never had to make before. Like if you leave your job to do this, like how are you going to get health insurance? So you might have to have some big decisions that you make. Um, But just don't be afraid of it because I think it's worse to live with the what if than... Than You try and fail. Absolutely. Try and fail and try and fail and then succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, last year, the Fund for American Studies, we did a new strategic plan to try to accelerate our growth. And in reviewing our mission statement, the one change we made in it where uh, in the past it said developing leaders, we inserted the word courageous. Our aim is to develop courageous leaders because in so many walks of life, even more so today than in the past, I think, a leader has to have courage because uh, they might fail. Someone might try to cancel them or shut them down or ridicule or their them idea. or steal their idea. Yeah. So you, you do have to have courage to be a leader. And I'm glad you touched on that when with your first piece of advice about don't be afraid, be brave, be courageous, because it does often take courage, personal courage to try anything new and to make a difference in the world. What other advice might you offer just in general to young people today uh, in college who are going to be coming out or attending our programs and trying to figure out what to do in their lives uh, about leadership or about having influence among those they're around? That's a heavy question. <laughs> yeah, you can take it in any direction, but you're a leader in, 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 in many ways. In, and you're also uh, someone who's you know making a difference through your businesses. Well, thank you. Um, so my advice for students going through the program or about to go through the program or just coming out of it. As far as being courageous, you know, it's, in my mind, it's real simple. It's when an idea and an action come together and you're the person that initiates that. And the question you have to ask yourself is, can I do that? And can I do that and also bring others along with me? 
And so that's the leadership portion of it. So the courageous portion of it is, can this idea and this action come together to do something? And then can I get others to follow me? And to get others to follow you, a program like the Fund for American, the programs that the Fund for American Studies offer, that's how you learn that. Like, yes, I was fortunate to grow up in a family where we had crazy political discussions all the time. But then when I showed up at TFAS, I had to learn how to have these conversations with people that had no, like their background was not at all similar to mine. And you have to learn how to, even something as simple as, hey, we should try out this new restaurant because we're all living in this cool city now. You have to find a way to get people to trust you and come with you to make that idea and that action happen. And so you can find certain ways to do that. For me, what really accelerated that was when I was asked to be a mentor shortly after I graduated from the TFAS program. So all of a sudden, I think I was like 22 years old. And they're and TFAS is like, hey, you're you're experienced enough to provide life and professional advice for, you know, an 18, 19 year old. <laughs> but you think of it and you're like, this is crazy. But at the time for me, it was like, oh, now I have to look at myself. I have a year of professional, you know, work on my resume. I've already done this program. I am now in a position to give advice to someone. Um, on how to do that. And that also helps develop your leadership skills and helps you learn how to be courageous, take an idea and an action, put it together and get others to follow you. Well, this, this has been great, Lindsay Rose. I've really enjoyed this conversation because I think, you know, TFAS is located in the nation's capital in DC and students who come to our programs are often looking to careers in politics and I think they're often also influenced by professors to think if they want to make a difference in the world, the way to do that is in politics or even in sometimes they would say, and it's my line of work. So in the nonprofit sector, uh, that that's the only way to make a difference in the world. And I, I try to impress on them that, you know, if you look at accomplished entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they've created a lot of wealth. Their wealth is now funding philanthropy, but the, the real, I think they've generally have made more of a difference in their entrepreneurial lives than in their lives as philanthropists, even when they engage in really philanthropy that I admire. Uh, but the products they give, the private sector develops for us that make our lives easier, cleaner, healthier. Uh, and it does, almost doesn't matter the business because you were taking, you know, precious resources, investing them into creating value and you were giving your customers something that made their lives better uh, and it, you know, freed up their time or enabled them to have fellowship with family and friends that they wouldn't have had. Uh, so I, I think you're a great example. Uh, and that's why for this podcast on Liberty and Leadership, we don't just want to bring on people who are holding public office. We want to bring in people who have created value through uh, entrepreneurship and through the private sector. So my hat goes off to you. I thank you very much for joining us today. I don't know if you have a last word before we conclude this, uh, but thank you for your, your giving back to TFAS as well along the way. Well, thank you. And I think my final words uh, would be, you don't have to be in politics to make a difference. In fact, the skill set and the experiences you learn through TFAS, you can make a difference in your local community. Like, 
literally the bare local, like your municipal government, your local government, your school system, all of that. And it takes the same skill set to make change as an entrepreneur or someone locally as it does to make change in the United States Senate. So it's the same skill set. And I hope that um, students that are listening and you know, former students and future students realize that TFAS creates that environment and protects the ideas of liberty and free enterprise and free thought that a lot of other students in other countries don't have. So take your skill set and know that you can use that out, outside of Congress. I'll just say that. You don't have to be a national politician. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Uh, My guest today has been Lindsay Rose King, entrepreneur, uh, someone giving back TFAS through our Board of Regents, new mother, got a lot going on in your life beside entrepreneurship. Congratulations on your success and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfast.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reed, and until next time, show courage in things large and small.